participation this morning. Time change, everybody, it's early, a little groggy this morning maybe, so I thought we'll get your, uh, your little brain juices flowing a little bit, do some audience participation. How many of you have ever uh, signed a contract for anything? Okay, lots of you have signed a contract. Somebody tell me, Donna, what, kind of, what was your contract for? Buy a house. Okay, so you signed a contract to buy a house. Uh, somebody else. Who else has signed a contract? Kevin, what, what kind of contract did you sign? Do work for a company. So you're going to do work for a company. And if you do that work with a contract stipulated, if you were to do that work for the company, what would they do? They would pay you. You would do work, you do work for them, they pay you. Novel. Anybody else contract? Somebody? Car loan. Okay, so... Car loans say you sign a contract, if you, they give you this car, you pay them. So it's reverse of that, but also a contract. Okay, very good, very good. Paul? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Marriage license is technically not a contract. <laughs> Marriage license is technically not a contract. You make no agreement to do anything for anyone. All, all a marriage license is, is actually a record. It's a record of an event. Mortgage is a contract. If you've ever purchased a home, and probably any large purchase, especially a large purchase in which you're going to finance, you'll sign a contract. Basically says, we'll give you this house if you agree to pay us this much money a month. And let's just say, now, for example, this might be a little bit too close to home. If you don't pay that money every month, then what happens? It's in the contract, Donna. And then what happens? (laughs) you can live there for a little while but ultimately what happens is they will take the house back you breached the contract, you broke the contract it's null and void and so they get what they gave you back how many of you have ever entered into a covenant Paul what was your covenant? marriage, Wally marriage okay alright that's good okay so, so here's the thing. The gospel that, that we have in the Bible is good news. It's good news. And in our series on God is love, over the past few weeks, we have said that it's such good news that sometimes it, it actually seems too good to be true. It almost seems too good to be true. We've also said it's such good news that it takes divine revelation to believe it. It's so good that you, you can't just make a decision based on information the way you can about so many other things in life to believe it. It actually requires the Holy Spirit of God to enlighten the eyes of your heart and really reveal who God is and what He does to you so that you can actually believe it. But very often in, in our culture today, and, and I would say not just in our culture today, but Universally, in in many cultures throughout history, the gospel has not been perceived and or received quite that way. As good a news as we've determined it is, oftentimes I think it's viewed as something different, something less, something not quite that good. And, And I really believe that the core problem at the heart of that issue lies the difference between a contract and a covenant. And so, even though they, they tend to be viewed similarly, 
and in some ways look similar. They're actually quite, quite different. So today we're going to continue in our God is Love series, but I want to focus directly today on covenant love. So let's just take a second and pray, and then we'll talk about covenant love. Lord, I, I do, I, I pray, I, I, uh, I agree with Jake's prayer. I pray we would see the invisible today. We would know the unknowable. We would experience the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that each and every person here would come to know you and experience you in a very real and deep and different way maybe than they ever have before, that you would do this for us today, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Amen. So in a contract, I think we determined pretty clearly that it's a, it's a two-party agreement. And, and it's, it's basically something for something. A contract is something for something. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. A contract is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's, it's uh, helpful and, and really necessary. It's, it's necessary because if there were no agreement, people would take advantage of others quite often. So it's, it's a good thing. But it really is different than a covenant. A covenant is it's a pledge or a vow to commit to something. Um, I, I like Wally's example of covenant in war. The, the clearest and most defined and most commonly understood example we have of covenant in our society is, of course, that of a marriage. And in a marriage, you, you exchange vows. That's the covenant. And they, these are pretty stock standard. Maybe you said something a little different. Maybe you wrote your own. But typically, it's something to this effect. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, and I promise in the presence of God, our families, our friends, to live with you and love you till death do us part. There's no, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you in, in marriage vows. It really is a 100% commitment. It's a pledge and a vow um, to commit to something. Now, uh, uh, Paul brought up a wedding license. Wedding license is not uh, a contract, nor is it actually anything between the two spouses. All a wedding license does is record for the state that you were actually married on that day for legal purposes. No one, no one has ever approached a divorce court saying, you broke our wedding license. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, but we'll talk about a little bit more about wedding license, and I think maybe... I don't want to be too subversive, but a negative aspect of that in a minute. So a contract essentially is conditional. If you don't meet the conditions of the contract, whatever was on the other side of that contract will be returned. Uh, a covenant is unconditional. There are no conditions there. In fact, it stipulates quite the opposite. It's for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer. It's a promise to do something how long? says it right there. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. It's, it's unconditional. You sign a contract. And although we do sign the wedding license, we don't sign the wedding vows. Uh, I, I love this. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. You sign a contract, what do you do at the end of wedding vows? You kiss. You kiss. It's so good. Such a better deal. I would rather kiss than sign a contract any day. 
You too, huh, honey? Contract is based on law. Covenant is based on, help me, love. Contract is based on law. Covenant is based on love. Here's what I think. This is totally off the record. This has nothing to do with the message today. Uh, It's maybe a message for another day. I, I really believe that one of the biggest problems in our culture with marriage today is that we have reduced marriage from covenant to contract. We have made marriage into a contract relationship, not a covenant relationship. I think prenups and things like that are very much (coughs) along that line. It basically says this is now a contract. It's no longer a covenant. I also think that the wedding license tends to focus more on the legal aspect of a marriage than on the covenant before God. And so I really don't think you need one, although the state would argue with me on that. I I married a couple one time. And at the, uh, at the end of the ceremony, we got to, you know, you always go sign the license, and I have to sign the license. I said, hey, let's sign the license. Where, where's the license? And they said, what license? We thought, you got the license. I go, no, 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 you have to get the license. I don't get the license. Oh, we don't have a license. I go, you don't have a license? Oh, hmm, well, that, that could be a problem. And <laughs> she says, can we still have sex? That's between you and God. <laughs> and apparently the state of Oregon. But uh, <laughs> Let me just say this, that covenant, covenant is a major theme throughout the Bible. Contract, not so much. In fact, I was thinking about it. I didn't want to misspeak, but I am personally not aware, it may be there, I'm personally not aware of anywhere that contract plays any kind of significant role in Scripture at all. However, however, I think we all are aware that covenant plays a very significant role all throughout uh, really the Old Testament, and I think we'll see today the New Testament as well. So the core problem to me is this. In the way that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is perceived, is that we, view, we tend to view it today uh, through the lens of contract, which is so prevalent in our society, and we've lost sight of the fact that it's actually a covenant. So, um, <coughs> man, I am so sorry, you guys. The, uh, that problem is not new. That's not something that just happened in the last few years. Frankly, this dates back all the way to uh, Genesis 3, and the story there of how not only Adam and Eve, but we as a race have fallen, we call that story the fall of man, how we've fallen from the agape covenant love relationship that God designated for us into a contract relationship with God. The Bible calls this the original sin, right? The original sin. You guys know the story, right? Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. They walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Their relationship with God was was they, they were, first of all, pure and innocent, and their relationship with God was perfect in everything that God intended it to be. And, and they were in perfect communion with him. It was enjoyable. I think it was a very enjoyable time. I think they were having a wonderful time with God in the garden, exactly as God planned. Now, we also know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the center of the garden. Very often, I believe that there's a mis interpretation of that story and that we view the tree in the center of the garden as a test. 
don't think it was a test at all. I think it was God's very loving, no trespassing sign. I think God was saying, in effect, look, trust me. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about a thing, but don't go over there. Don't go over there. And you see, see here's the thing. We were, cre- we were created in the image of God. We're to be like Him, but we're to be like Him in terms of our character and our behavior, not in terms of our wisdom and our ability to judge others. That really is reserved for God alone. God says again, look, I'll do this for you. Trust me. Leave that to me. You guys, your job is to be lovers. Love, enjoy me, enjoy creation, and everything will be fine. So, of course, enter Satan. Satan is depicted in Genesis as the serpent. He's often called the accuser. And what does he do? He accuses God. He says, oh, oh, oh. God knows that you won't die when you do that. God knows you'll be like him. You'll become wise like him. But he accuses God. And, of course, Adam and Eve eat of the tree, and frankly, we've been eating of that same tree ever since. See, the story of Genesis, this is important, you guys. It's not just the story of what happened then. It's it's the story of our lives. It's the story of what has been happening ever since then. We have become something in that fall that we were never, ever intended to be. The accuser has gotten inside of us, and he's caused us to become Little accusers. Little, little accusers. We now want to be like God in a way that's not good and healthy, in a way that we weren't intended to be like God. We want to be the Lord of our own lives. We want to call our own shots. And quite frankly, we want to rule over other people to the degree that we're able. In, in virtually every setting in life. Every setting in life. We are constantly in our own minds, assessing, evaluating, keeping score. Are we not? And we begin, and it begins here. This is just part of the tragedy to me. It begins by we accuse ourselves. How, How am I doing? Am I adding up? Am I as good as this person over here? Am I as pretty as her? Am I as rich as him? You know, and, and let me just say this. You you can't walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God with that going on in your head. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. You guys know, you know those moments where God becomes so real and you experience God and suddenly you're there in his presence. He's real. He's, you feel him. You sense him. He's all around. You just, it's, you know what I'm talking about. Anybody you've been there? That those moments when you just all of a sudden are in God's presence in such a way that it's overwhelming to you. Do you know what happens in those moments? The accuser shuts up. The accuser shuts up, and you don't hear those voices. All of a sudden, it's pure and clean the way God intended it to be. You're not focused on how you're doing or how anybody else is doing or what they're doing for you or anything else. You're just in the presence of God. And as soon as that moment ends, and sometimes they last longer than others, but when that moment ends, the accusations start right up. You go, oh, yes, I almost forgot I am a slug. And it comes right back to that again. Most of the time, most of the time as we walk through life, even as Christians, 
definitely as non-Christians, I think when we become Christians, the balance shifts a little bit, but we still spend a considerable amount of time feeling empty and alienated from God and, and, and separated from our Creator, but longing and desiring for Him. And let me say this, everyone, everyone feels that. Whether they admit it or not, acknowledge it or not, even know it or not, everyone feels that alienation. This, it's a little, the, the quote I'm going to read you is a little dated now. It comes from 1994, but it's so profound. It's by a guy named Douglas Copeland. Copeland is sort of a, a, a Gen X guru. He quoted, he coined the term Generation X, wrote a couple books, and then in 1994 he wrote what is sort of the postmodern manifesto called Life After God. And he spends about 300 pages. It's a story. It's a series of stories talking about that emptiness and that alienation and that separation and that sense of longing. And then at the very end of the book, he says this. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray. The guy's not a believer. I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. Postmodern Gen X theologian, I would have to say. He nails it. That's where we live. It all feels so, so wrong. Something is wrong and we try to make it right. And what do we do to try to make it right? Typically, we shift the blame. We stop accusing ourselves and start accusing everybody else. We, we, because, why? Because if you're worse than me, I feel a little better about myself, at least for a little while, right? So I'll accuse you. You know, I, 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 I may be a gossip, but at least I'm not gay. I mean, I may be a glutton, but I'm not a criminal. I may be a liar, but I'm a cute liar, right? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? Now, at that point, really, frankly, the whole thing's a mess. It's, 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 it's completely sideways. Yesterday, yesterday, Adam and Eve were walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden, and now they're terrified. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's all different. Can I tell you, God didn't change? They changed. God didn't change. They changed. They see God differently because of their own sin. And they're afraid and they hide. And now they accuse God. And they say, oh, God's mad all the time and he's out to get us. God, we, better, we better hide because God's going to get us. God's up there. He's watching. He's waiting. He, he's going to bust us. He's like a cosmic traffic cop with a cosmic radar gun. And he's going to get me any minute, you know. And, and, and uh, if he doesn't like what he sees, he'll, he'll make bad things happen. Oh, you guys have misbehaved. Here's an earthquake. Have that. Or here, you know, I'm going to send a famine. I'm going to send a disease. You guys are sinning, so here's, here's AIDS. Oh, you guys aren't falling after me. Well, here, have an earthquake. Take that. And that becomes our view of God. And, and that really, that really is how the enemy deceives us and blinds us, as we said last week, so that we can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through that process. We now see God as the accuser, and we see the accuser as God, and we have reduced everything into contract terms, legal terms. We now view this whole relationship with God as a negotiation 
And it no longer is the agape covenant love that it was intended to be. And really, when you begin to see, when you begin to see the good news, look, the best you can hope for in that, in that deal is a good deal. That's really, that's it. That's the best you can hope for is a good deal. And when you begin to see the good news as a good deal, when the good news is presented to us as a good deal in terms of legal contract terms, if, if, you be, if you obey me and do what I say, I won't zap you. That's not such good news anymore, is it? Let me ask you a question. Does that sound too good to be true? Do, does, does that sound so good that it would require supernatural revelation to believe? It becomes, let's make a deal, not let me transform you into my image by my overwhelming, unsurpassing, unconditional love for you. And, and, and really, now it becomes a story of a contract negotiation. It's no longer the story of a good shepherd looking for a lost sheep. It's no longer the story of a woman looking for the lost coin. It's no longer the story of the prodigal son come home smelling like pigs, filthy, dirty, broke, squandered the inheritance, and the father runs out to meet him. It's no longer the story of a, of a heavenly husband looking for his beautiful bride. The, the good news, the good news is about the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not about a contract negotiation. You know, Jesus' coming was not plan B. Do you guys know that? You need to know that. Jesus' coming was not plan B. Jesus didn't come just to fix something was broken. Jesus came to fulfill the longing in the heart of God for his people. It's plan A, and it reaches back before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, God's plan was to redeem his people and to acquire a bride for himself. See, the title of our series is God is Love. I said to you a couple weeks ago, and you guys all nodded, God can't stop loving, right? God can't, he doesn't one day, he's not going to stop loving you no matter what you do. Can I tell you something else? God didn't just one day start loving either. God didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I'll become loving today. God is love. God is love. Before the creation of the world, he chose you, he chose us to be in him. That's always been the plan. From the beginning, God wanted to invite you and I, he wanted to invite human beings into a covenant relationship with him. That's always, always, always been the plan. God's plan has always been to acquire a bride. That's why Ephesians 5, Paul says it's a mystery. He's struggling to even describe the relationship with God, but he says it's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. That's what it's like. The joy that you know in a marriage relationship, the joy of the wedding, the joy, that's the joy that I intend for you to have in my relationship with you. Jesus, Jesus didn't come just to solve a problem. Jesus came to fulfill the longing in God's heart for his bride, really. Now, look, Jesus had to die on the cross to forgive our sin. But that, isn't, that doesn't exhaust the reason. That's not the fullness of the reason that God came. Um, God sent Jesus because, look, the bride had gotten into trouble. The, the, the bride had lost her way, 
She'd gone after other lovers. She she had uh, just lost her way. And, and, And God didn't come... He didn't send Jesus because he was mad. He sent Jesus because he was madly in love. That's, that's, that's why God sent Jesus. The, that, see, it was a rescue mission because that's what covenant love does. See, if, you're, if your bride is in the house, uh, in a house and the house is on fire, you're going to go in and get her out. Even, let's just say, it was foolishness that got her into the house. She shouldn't have been in there. She knew she shouldn't have been in there. She went in anyway. You're still going to go in and get her out. Even, even if her purpose for being in there is sinful, e- even if she was going to meet somebody else, you're still going to go in and get her out because that's what covenant love does. And you do that with the hope that that self-sacrificial love will ultimately win her back. That's the story of the Bible. See, guys, the house was on fire. The house was on fire. The bride was a mess. And Jesus came anyway. I want my bride. I'm going in. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to stop me from winning her back. That's the covenant love of God. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. See, that's why the story ends with a party. That's why the story ends with a party. The, the shepherd found the sheep, threw a party. The, the lady found the coin, she threw a party. The son came home, he threw a party. Revelation, God comes back, what happens? A party. It's a party. God, God didn't say, he, he, he didn't rescue, you know, the shepherd didn't find the sheep and then say, now look what you made me do. There's no paybacks, okay? There's no paybacks in this deal. There's no paybacks in covenant love. The bride was lost, and God sent Jesus to find her and bring her home. And at the end of that story, there's just a party. And it was the joy of Jesus who did it. Nothing else. Nothing else. See, God is love. God always has been, and he always will be. That's the covenant love of God. Okay, good. Let's stand. Hey, Jake, would you uh, come back up here for a minute? I'm going to pray, and I'll invite our ministry team to come up. If you'd like to pray today, you can come up and uh, let them pray for you.